Father God, we're thankful and grateful to come together uh, as your people, and Lord, to learn uh, from your word and also learn, oh God, how to study your word and get more out of our Bible reading and our Bible study. I pray that you'll just bless this time and be with us uh, in these ways, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So tonight, we're going to talk about understanding historical, historical narrative uh, in the Bible. In other words, when the Bible writes about history, how do we understand it? But that sounds really boring. Does that sound boring to anybody? I mean, it doesn't. Good, good. You're geeks like me. I love it. I love it. Um, but the, the, the idea is how to squeeze all the juice out of the Word of God that you can, how to understand it better, and how not to misuse it. Uh, last month, I think last month, we talked about biblical poetry and just gave some ideas on how to do that. So one of the things we'll use tonight uh, to, to make it a little more juicy, and the title was, What Do David and Goliath Have to Do With Me? So we can read that story, and uh, people can get a million different things out of uh, reading 1 Samuel chapter 17, which is the account of David and Goliath. Uh, but there are some things we may get out of it that are valid, and there are many things people may get out of it that are invalid. The biblical author is not making that point. So how do you know what point the author is making? How do you know what is a valid application of truth from a, a biblical narrative, from a story that's written in the Bible, and what is not uh, an appropriate uh, message or understanding to get out of that. So we're going to talk a little bit, first of all, about biblical narrative overall. First of all, so narrative is the most frequently found form of literature in the Bible. 40% um, of the Old Testament and 60% of the New Testament is narrative, it's story. So God didn't just come down, he gave 10 commandments, remember, on the mountain, but he didn't give us 66 books that just lay out, do this, do this, do this, and do this. He gave us stories. By and large, he gave us accounts, narratives of patriarchs in the Old Testament, of, of prophets in the Old Testament, of the life of Jesus in the New Testament, the history of the early church in the New Testament. And, and so many times people want to take a narrative and look at what a certain character in the Bible did and got a certain result and say, aha, that's what we have to do. And, and many times we miss the whole reason and the purpose of the story. And so that's what we want to get to. How can we understand the story right? Now, biblical narrative is explicitly historical. I went to, co I went to college back in 1832. Actually... That's, that's not true. But I remember being in college in the 1980s. Yes, it was the early 1980s. But, uh, and, and, and taking some courses on religion and learning very quickly uh, that the Bible is full of stories that are myth. That's what I learned in college. And it was supposedly a Christian college as well. Right, And so I'm learning about the Bible as myth, and I just got saved, and I'm reading the Bible, and I said, I read some myths. This don't look like a myth to me. Because uh, if, if you objectively look at the Bible as a piece of literature, and then you look at myths in literature, you, you, the only uh, uh, things that you'll see in common are very surface things. The, the, the stories in Scripture are filled with detail, they're filled with historical uh, accounts. And uh, over the past 150 years, as archaeology has, has become more, a, more of a science, especially in the land of Palestine and in biblical lands, one after another they've discovered things that time and time again point to the historicity of the Bible. Very unlike, for example, the Book of Mormon. If anyone's ever checked out the Book of Mormon, uh, they've done a lot of archaeological work and found that nothing in the Book of Mormon is actually history. Um, so the Bible is very different in that way. But what we're trying to find out when 
we, we're, we're looking to exegete. And remember last, last month we talked about the word exegete means to pull out from, to understand what's in the scripture. So we're pulling out the meaning of scripture. That's what exegete means. So when we're doing that, uh, the meaning is found in what the author willed to teach by his record of the event. So our task, your task in understanding biblical narrative is not to understand exactly how this happened, exactly what it looked like, but ultimately your task is to find out what is this author trying to say? What is he trying to teach? I remember uh, uh, reading uh, and doing some research on, for example, uh, the parting of the Red Sea. And you can read forever about people's theories of how the Red Sea opened up. You can read there was, there was an earthquake that was 19 miles upstream, or, or it's not even a stream, right? I guess that must have been the passing through of the Jordan into the Promised Land. But you read all these theories about what could have happened, and what could, it's like, okay, y'all don't know any more than I know, right? You can come up with all these theories. What I know is what the Bible says. What I know is the account that is given there. And, and, and so we're looking not just for exactly how the event happened, but how was it described by the author. We're not trying to get into the author's subconscious. We're just trying to understand the words on that page and what point they're making. So when we interpret biblical narrative, narrative is never written just to record that an event took place. Right? Now that's, that's true in any history, isn't it? I remember growing up, and uh, when, when, when I was coming up, and we read about Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And we read about Christopher Columbus. And he was a hero in every story we ever read, right? Now, uh, that's from one perspective. But you can read another perspective of Christopher Columbus, can't you? where he's not such a hero to a whole lot of people, right? You, you, you can watch the news about the exact same event on Fox News and on MSNBC, and you're like, how is this even the same event, right? That because their, their perspectives are wildly different. And history books are that way as well, right? Newspapers, news, what is news depends on who's the editor and what they want to say and how they want to say it. So history's always written that way. The Bible's not different. So the, the authors in the Bible are giving a perspective to teach something. So the, the focus always actually points to faith in Yahweh, faith in the Lord, faith in, in Jesus Christ. So the primary, the primary focus, again, is not the... Uh, event itself, but the author's interpretation. Now, we said this last time, but this bears repeating over and over again. Context is the most important key for rightly interpreting narrative. And we'll look at some levels of context uh, different than we looked at uh, last month when we're looking at narrative. So you, you want to look at that passage, not just by itself. If you're reading a particular passage in the scripture, you need to look at what's around that passage, in that chapter, in that book, all of those sorts of things. So let's talk for a second about David and Goliath and the context of that story. First of all, David and Goliath is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, Saul is rejected as king. So he disobeys God, he's confronted by the prophet, and now he is, he is told that uh, he's losing his kingship because of his disobedience to the Lord. In chapter 16, this young little shepherd boy, David, not the choice for the prophet, not the choice for the father, not the choice for anybody. He's out in the field and the 
prophet's looking at all these other good-looking, tall, older sons, thinking that must be the one. But little David comes in, and God anoints David as king. And then later in that chapter, you see that David is called to serve Saul because Saul's having some issues, and David can play some instruments and soothe Saul. And so Saul comes in, that's his first contact, or David comes in, that's his first contact with Saul. Um, now, in, in the original uh, Hebrew scriptures, 1st and 2nd Samuel are actually one book. Same thing with 1st and 2nd Kings, same thing with the books of Chronicles. Uh, and the books record the history of Israel from the end of the period of the judges through the kingships of Saul and David. So uh, you have about a 110-year period there that is covered in 1st uh, and 2nd Samuel. Now, completed, it's completed sometime after David dies because the death of David is in there. So that happened approximately 970 B.C. But, but it's before the fall of the northern kingdom. Samaria uh, fell in 722. So then Samuel may have been a primary author for part of the book. Now, he dies in the book, so he's probably not the primary author for the things that happened after he died, right? Right? He was a prophet, but he, did, he didn't write all that. Um, but, uh, and then others, there's other sources that came together to put together this book of Samuel. Now, we're starting to study and think about um, 1 Samuel chapter 17, David and Goliath. Just in, in terms of what I've talked about so far, what have you noticed in my studying of 1 Samuel chapter 17? Anybody? Okay, talk about chapter 15 and 16. We talked about 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel together. We talked about history and authorship and all these other things. We haven't even read the text yet, right? We haven't gotten there yet. So there's, there's background things that you do if you're really going to study the text. So just some more things about the context here. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are considered the former prophets in the Hebrew canon. We don't talk about them as prophets, right? Of those books as prophetic books. But in, in the Bible, in the Hebrew canon, they were considered the former prophets. Now the books are also known, this is a hard word to say, so I'm going to have you repeat it after me, as Deuteronomic history. Some, who, want, who wants to just stand up and say it real loud? Deuteronomic history. Raise your hand if you want to be the one right here. I see that hand. Not, you're confident. Give it to us. Come on, that's good. That's good. High five. There we go. Okay. So you too can say Deuteronomic history. So they lay out the history of uh, Israel from the time of the judges all the way through the, the, the monarchy and, and the kings of Israel up to the time of the captivity of Israel. So they, they lay those things out in light of the book of Deuteronomy, and that's important. It's important to understand that as you read these books. So the primary focus is on the Lord rewarding the righteous and punishing the wicked. If you look at Deuteronomy 27, 9 through 28, 68, it lays out all the, the blessings and the punishments based on obedience or disobedience. And that is a primary way in which the Deuteronomist or the Deuteronomic history is laying out the history of Israel. And we'll see what that means in a second. So the book lays out a theology of monarchy. So this is a quote from a guy who was a professor of mine some years ago, but he says Deuteronomy also provided for the day that the people would want a king. Somebody look up uh, Deuteronomy 17, starting at verse 14. Who wants to look that up for us and read it out loud for us? I see that hand. Okay, so I'm going to come back to you in just a minute. But so the Deuteronomy, ah, see, now I can't say it. The Deuteronomic historian reports what life was like without a king. You see that in Joshua and Judges. Anybody remember Joshua and Judges? What was life like without a king? 
it was a mess, right? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then it also records what life is like with a king through the books of Samuel and Kings. It's largely a record of the disobedience of the people and the faithfulness of God. Right? So even without a king, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. With a king, if you read through the kings of Israel and Judah, you're reading about a whole bunch of mess. Right? They fall short of being what God calls them to be. And so that's the context, the larger context in looking at anything you're going to look at in the book of Samuel. You, want, you need to understand what that context looks like. So now we're just going to look through some basic... Oh, I forgot almost, so let's go back and read for us Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. Read it nice and loud, Miss Pam. Use your outside voice. Right, so what are some of the things you notice about that description of the king that would be king over God's people in Israel? What are some things you noticed about that description? Avery. Right, can't be a foreigner, can't be from somewhere else. He has to be an Israelite. What are some other things you notice about that description? Yes. Tall and strong. Not in the description, Doc. <laughs> but that, that's a good one, though. I know you were messing with me. What's that? Well, there were some, there were some giants. Goliath was one. Right. Yeah. The Bible says that Saul was a head above all the other men in Israel. So he was like little Shaq. You know, that was King Saul. So he looked, like, he looked like a king, right? Now we're going to find out another guy who's, who's kind of short and small named David who ends up being a, a much better king. But, um, but yeah, so, so according to the world, people would look for what does a king look like? That's what a king looks like. What are some other things? If you have your Bible, look at that description. What are some other things in that description? He shouldn't have many wives. He have many wives. Oh, gosh, some of the guys messed up a little bit, right or wrong. <laughs> How about your boy uh, Solomon, right? You, you know how to say Solomon in, in Hebrew? It's Shlomo. I love that name. I just, Shlomo. The Shlommeister. 700 wives. 300 concubines. That's 1,000 women. I got one, and I, I'm, I'm struggling sometimes, man. I, I don't know how he does it. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Ah, uh, he didn't quite do what the Bible said to do, did he? Right? It, it, it says he shouldn't have many horses. It says there shouldn't be 
gold and all this thing. And, and if you look at the descriptions of, of the kings in Israel, many times they're violating those principles over and over and over again, right? But in, in Deuteronomy earlier, the call, the, the, God's ultimate desire for Israel was that he would be their king, right? In the days of the judges, it was a theocracy. God is king over Israel, right? But the people say, we want to be like the other nations. We want to have a king too. And so in Deuteronomy, God makes space for that. But then he lays out what that king's going to look like, what he should look like, how he should live according to the book and be in the book and read the book all the days that he's a king. Okay? So now I just want to look at some, some basic things, and, and I'm going to need people to volunteer for scriptures. If you see scriptures in bold, we want to look at those. So start thinking of that in advance. Look at those scriptures and raise your hand when I ask you. So first of all, when you're interpreting biblical narrative, in introductions and conclusions are important. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. Who's got that for us? Mark 1, 1. I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Now somebody look up John 20 right now. But Mark 1, 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the first verse of the book. He's letting you know what he's talking about in this book and how he sees Jesus, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he lays it out from the very beginning. Now look at John chapter 20. Who's got that for us? Right there. John chapter 20, nice and loud, verses 30 and 31. Okay, so at the end of the book here, near the end of John's gospel, he says, Jesus did a whole bunch of stuff, and later on, it's, it's going to say, if we tried to write them all, there wouldn't be enough books to write all this stuff, right? But he says, he did many other things, but these things I've written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, and that believing in him, you might have life, right? So, when a book gives you such a synopsis of itself, when you read the rest of the contents of the book, you know that the story is somehow relating to pointing to uh, that truth, right? Everything in John is pointing to who Jesus is and the need to have faith in him and that having faith in him is the way to have eternal life. So when you read anything in John, you have those eyeglasses on. Was anyone, uh, the, the storm last night, man, that was a crazy storm, right? For like 10 minutes. And, and I remember we had some folks over at the house, and we went outside right after the storm. Did anyone go outside after that storm? It was like bizarro land, right? I felt like I had yellow-tinted glasses on. I'm like, what is this? My wife was like, I don't know if I like this. I, I said, you're, 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 you're ready, baby. If, if he comes now, you're, you're good. You're good. I know you're good. So it's, it's all good. But I felt like I was in Star Trek for a minute. You know, it was just this yellowy. And you took a picture and put it on Facebook. It's a great picture. Um, but it was like, wow, it's weird. But, but, you know, it felt like going out with the di different glasses on to make things look different. But when, when the scripture clues you in like this, it gives you different glasses and a way to view the contents of that book. It's like a key, like you just got the Cliff's Notes for the Gospel of John right there. You just got it. So you got insight, and it helps you to understand the book better. So uh, introductions and conclusions are important. Comments by the author. Um, give insight into a passage. Mark 12, 12 says, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told a parable against them. So they left him and went away. Always look, like when you have dialogue going on, look at the, the comments of the author to clue you in 
to what exactly he's dealing with in that passage. Very important. Summaries of the author. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. Who's got Genesis chapter 6? Right over there, I saw that hand. What's that? <laughs> nice and loud, super loud. Amen. So where does the fall of man happen in the Bible? Who knows? What chapter? Genesis 3. Genesis 3, right. Man falls into sin. What happens in Genesis chapter 4? Anybody remember? Cain and Abel happened in Genesis chapter 4. You're getting this accumulating mess of sin. And then if you read the earlier uh, verses in, in Genesis uh, chapter 6, it talks about very controversial verses of the sons of, of man and, and, and the sons of God and getting together. What does all that mean? We don't have to get into that tonight. Um, but, but all this stuff is going on, and there's wicked, and, and it's a mess. And so he sums it up. He gives a summary of all of that in, in Genesis 6, 5 through 8. And he also gives... Can you read verse 8 again? He also gives the, 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 not the summary, but, but he gives an introduction to the next several chapters of the book. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then he's gonna, he chooses Noah out of the earth to start all over again. So, Looking at summaries is important. The repetition of words or themes used by an author, light in John's gospel. In the Judges, you see this phrase over and over again, uh, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Another example would be, for instance, there are sayings in John's gospel, the I am sayings. Has anyone ever heard of those? Like when Jesus over and over again says in chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life, right? In chapter 10, he says, I am the door. In other words, he's the way into the presence of God. He says also in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. In chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine. In chapter 8, it's, it's usually not considered one of the I am sayings, but he's in this, this contentious argument with the Pharisees, and th they, they take the ultimate pot shot at Jesus because we, we know how Jesus was born, right? To Mary, a virgin, and they're saying, yeah, right, your mama was a virgin. I don't believe that for a second, right? So something happened. You were, you were born, they would say, illegitimately, and and in fact, they accuse him of that in John chapter 8. They said, well, we're not born illegitimately. They're like, yo, Jesus, you're born the wrong way. And, and they begin to talk about Abraham. And uh, they say, we're children of Abraham. And Jesus says, well, if you were children of Abraham, you wouldn't want to kill me. Before Abraham was, he says, I am. Now, all of those I am sayings in John's gospel, the, the Greek is ego and me. And they push people, any, any first century Jew would know that he is calling himself by the divine name. Yahweh in the Old Testament is I am that I am, right? From Exodus chapter 3. So Jesus is saying, I am the I am. Right? So you look at these themes through a book. You look at repeated phrases and words and see the importance of what that can mean. Okay. All right. So interpreting biblical narrative again. 
emphasis, details, and proportion that the author gives to aspects of a story. So what is significant about details given or left out of an account? So especially if you have parallel accounts, you can look at that. Whenever you are doing exegetical work or Bible study on the Gospels, look if that, that pericope or that event is talked about in other Gospels. You can do comparative work there. You can also do that in the Old Testament, particularly with prophets and then histories, and then between the histories of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, they overlap. But they often have different emphasis. So here's an example of that different emphasis. 1 Kings 8, verse 16 says, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now look at 2 Chronicles. I'm going to ask a question in just a second. But look at what it says in 2 Chronicles Chapter 6, parallel account. Since the day I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, and I chose no man as prince over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. This is part of Solomon's speech um, as they're dedicating the temple so tell me, what do you notice that's different about those two accounts? What pops out at you as being different? Jerusalem. So he's making a very specific point in the passage in Chronicles about Jerusalem. Now the book of Chronicles was written well after uh, Samuel and Kings were written. It was written after the people came out of exile. They had been in Babylon for 70 years. They went back to the land, and here they are. They think it's going to be incredible and wonderful in the land, and guess what happens? It's hardship and difficult and trial, mostly because of their own disobedience, right? So many of the latter prophets uh, uh, prophesy about this, and so they go there, and they're building their homes, but they're neglecting First of all, the walls of Jerusalem, Nehemiah has to get in there and work on that. And then they're neglecting to rebuild the temple, which God called them to do, because they're doing their own thing. And they're wondering why the land is not plentiful, why it's difficult to live, because they're not obeying the Lord. They're running into the same issues that they ran into before. But the writer of Chronicles is writing to give hope to the people of Israel. He's writing to give them hope. And so he mentions Jerusalem by name because they're now back in the land and, and he wants them to remember the fact that God has established his name in Jerusalem and that they are God's people gathered in that place. So he makes a special emphasis. You can also look, for example, the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. Is that a pretty important uh, 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 thing in, in David's life, do you think? It, it's kind of important. Are you glad that you know that about David? I mean, it, this is not like reality television or anything, but, but it gives us a full view of who David was. He was a great king, he was a great man, but he made a great mess, right? He made a great mess with Bathsheba, and we see that in, in 2 Samuel 11. We wouldn't see that, if the only history that we had from the Bible was in Chronicles. Because in Chronicles, if you can believe it or not, when it talks about David, it never once mentions the issue with Bathsheba. Doesn't even mention it. Um, Solomon's wives are talked about in 1 Kings chapter 11. 700 wives, 300 concubines. All this stuff is mentioned, and it, it, it talks about it in such a way to let us know that he was being disobedient to God by marrying foreign women, and therefore that was bringing him down and bringing down the kingdom, right? So 
That is Deuteronomic history. It wants to say, if you disobey God, you're going to reap the consequences of your disobedience. You're going to reap the curse. Ultimately, you're going to go into exile. That's what the writer of Samuel and the writer of Kings are trying to tell us. The writer of uh, Chronicles, when he lays out the life of Solomon, if that's all you ever read about Solomon, you would think he was the bomb diggity times 10. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Solomon. Solomon's got it all together. He is the man on steroids. Um, But again, he's looking at history from one angle to give hope to a people who have been set free from captivity but still don't understand their destiny in the land. So he's writing to give them hope. So here we go. Again, authoritative speakers to look at in Scripture. Uh, When Jesus talks, you better listen, right? Right? Now let, let me say one thing about that. Um, there's a phrase that I've heard, and there's even a website and all this other stuff about red-letter Christians. Has anyone ever heard of that? Has anyone ever had a, a, a Bible where the words of Jesus are in red? Like, I have no, no big issue with that. Matter of fact, I have one study Bible by a pastor, and all the words in the Scripture are in black, but his words of commentary are in red. I said, dude, you shouldn't do that. That's not smart. That's not good. But anyway, I'm off, off, off point. Um, the, the words of Jesus in red. That, that's nice. That's fine. But, but the issue, some people would say, I'm a red-letter Christian. Man, the things that Jesus said, I'm going to stick with those things. What Paul said, eh, he may not agree with Jesus. What the Old Testament says, eh, don't necessarily know about that. And, and a lot of people look at their scriptures that way. We can't do that. All of Scripture speaks of the, sal- the, the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. It's all pointing to Him. So we need to look at all of Scripture that way. Now, having said that, um, when you read Scripture, sometimes people are talking in Scripture and they're, they're making points, but sometimes their points are foolish, right? So you don't want to take someone's foolish point and just look at that verse and say, well, the Bible says, and then talk about some foolish point that one of Job's friends made, for example, right? Made a lot of foolish points, and there's a lot of things like that, so you need to interpret it rightly. But look for comments from prophets, from Jesus, from others that carry weight to to be clued into the meaning of, of Scripture. So, In 1 Samuel chapter 17, David and Goliath, David's voice is the voice of an anointed king who's operating in faith. Saul's voice is that of a rejected king who refuses to obey God. So if you, uh, we're not going to have time to get into this in any detail, but go back, read 1 Samuel 17. Look at everything that Saul says. Look at everything that David says. This is just one example. Verse 32, David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Speaking of Goliath, your servant will go and fight this Philistine. He, David's got an attitude. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who, who would say these things about the Lord our God? Who is he? And, and, but, but Saul's reaction to David says, You're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. You're just a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. Then David says, man, I had lions and bears. I was a shepherd, and I was able to to kill the lion and to kill the bear. He has faith. Uh, Saul still can't get over it. He says, you need to wear my armor. So he's looking at things by the way of the flesh. David is looking at things by the way of the spirit. Can you imagine David, a a little, small kind of dude, putting on the armor of of, of Saul, who's probably a foot taller than him, that must have been a jacked-up look, right? It didn't even look good. But David said, I can't wear this stuff. I haven't tested it. I don't know it. But I know that the Lord will give victory to his people. So when you look at David's voice, you see the voice of an anointed king. You see the voice of someone who has faith 
in the Lord and who moves in that faith, Saul not so. So that's important clues in looking at narrative, who's speaking, what does it mean? So now, dialogue and direct discourse, very important clue to what the author wants to emphasize. And conclusion here, determining the meaning of narrative is not determining exactly what happened. We talked about that at the beginning. It's not exactly how did this event unfold. Instead, the meaning consists of understanding what the author wanted to communicate to those he wrote to and derived from that what God is communicating to us. So this sentence up here, when you're doing Bible study on a passage, you need to, at the end of your study, that's what you have to fill in. So wherever you're reading in Scripture, the biblical author has written this particular narrative because what is the reason that he's written it to his original audience? What does he want them to take away from that? That's the question that needs to be answered through your study. So let's just look at, look at this for a second. In studying the scriptures, it's evident that each of these three fields are intricately interrelated to one another. So we talked about what exegesis is. What does the word mean? Taking out of, right, exegesis. So exegesis is, let, let's, I'll talk about a game I don't know very well. So let's talk about soccer for a second. I see Enoch over here and some others that know soccer real well. So if we use soccer for an example, exegesis is getting out on the field and playing soccer. You're kicking the ball, you're doing your thing, you're making passes, you're, I don't even know the right words for soccer, man. I should have used basketball. Uh, <laughs> You're trying to block people. I don't know. You block in soccer. What? You tackle people, right? No, you don't tackle people. I know that's football, but oh, Lord, I, I'm out of my league, y'all. But, but you're out on the field trying to score some goals and trying to stop the other team from scoring goals. That, that is you're doing soccer. You're playing soccer. That's exegesis. You're in the game doing the stuff. Hermeneutics, when you hear the word hermeneutics, that's the rules of the game. Okay? So... The rules of the game in soccer and basketball, for example, are very different. In basketball, if you kick the ball, it's a turnover, right? But in, in soccer, you have to kick the ball. If you pick the ball up in basketball, you're fine. If you dribble the ball, you're fine. But dribbling in soccer is with your feet, not with your hands, right? So you've got different rules for different games. So hermeneutics is understanding the rules that, uh, that the game is governed by. And as we talk about different genres of Scripture, different uh, types of Scripture, historical narrative, poetry, Gospels, different forms of Scripture, they have di slightly different rules to interpret by. And then systematic theology is kind of like looking at the history of the game. So when we talk about systematic theology, we're putting together all of what's been learned and looking at every Scripture that deals with a particular subject and we're looking at that, okay? So that's how that interrelationship happens. Couple more things here, exegesis and gospel communication. Now, here's what often happens. When we talk about a story like uh, David and Goliath, exemplary or moralistic understanding. Ask how are these people like us and how are they examples to us? So it goes straight from the biblical account, write to me and you, and says, okay, then what do I do? We'll look at that in a second. Redemptive historical asks, how is God working out his plan uh, and for all, his, his plan once and for all with us in view? So we're looking at the grand scheme of God's plan. And that's how we need to examine scripture. We need to look at all of what God has done and, and where this fits into his plan of salvation. And then typology. You'll see Pastor E does this a lot in his sermons. He's done it the last few weeks as he's looked at different characters in the Bible. Uh, Joseph, you know, we talked about how Joseph is a type of Christ. We see that with David. We see that in this story. David is the anointed king. He ultimately fails 
to do uh, what he's called to do, but he is still looked at as the great king of Israel, the one to whom we can look back and have hope that there's one greater than David that will come from his lineage, even Jesus Christ, right? So we see the typology in David's life that points forward to Jesus Christ. And so we can understand uh, things from David's life through that grid. Now, again, looking at exemplary, we would say something like, we should be like David and slay the Goliaths in our lives. I could say it like this here. If life gives you lemons, you squeeze those things and make some lemonade. Glory to God. If there's something big in your way, it doesn't matter how little you are. Because you have a big God. Amen. So a lot of that is what's on TV. That kind of preaching gets ratings. Sometimes that kind of preaching can build big churches. Right? Because it just, it just seems like it fits so good. Wow. I'm little. He's big. I think I can take him. I don't want to tell you the story about me being at the gym the other night, but I'll tell somebody later. But a big guy was calling me some names. I said, glory to God. <laughs> My wife said, it's time to get out of here. I said, you're right. Let's go. <laughs> I, I can't be in the news like this. Um, so redemptive historical looks at the fact that God raises up his anointed king to destroy the enemies and those of his people. So it's a very different way of looking at this story, right? It, it's, it's anointed kingship to overcome doubt and faith and the enemies of the kingdom of God, which cannot stand no matter how powerful they look. When you think about David and Goliath, now I'm going to talk as a basketball fan, some of you remember a guy named Muggsy Bogues. Muggsy was five foot two in the NBA, killing it in the NBA, right? So it's Muggsy Bogues against Shaq. That's David against Goliath. That's the size kind of comparison there, right? You got this huge guy and you got this little pipsqueak of a guy, right? But the, the, the reality here is that God can use whoever he wants to use, who's anointed, who believes in the word of God and is not intimidated by what the enemy seems to put before him, right? And so we, we look at typology here. We see David as a type of Christ who's slain every enemy in order to set his people free. So if you look at that, the, the diagram on the bottom you see David and the exemplary, moral, exemplary or moralistic goes all the way to today. It doesn't deal with the cross. It doesn't deal with salvation history. It doesn't deal with Jesus Christ. It just says, look, what can we learn here? So people go to a story like David and Goliath and say, David took five smooth stones. Five. Five is a number of kingship in Israel. He took the first stone. One, there is one God. Right? And, and you go into all these things and you go into all the details and make stuff up. You can make up a lot of good stuff. And if you do it the right way, it can really sound like, man, he's in that Bible, man. But he's in the Bible, but it's foolishness. It doesn't have to do with what the Bible is trying to teach us. So I'm going to pass by this one real quick. Actually, I'm going to go to this end slide and then I'll go back. So when you're doing work in Bible study or exegesis. Here, here's the, the basic thing, and then I'll go through six steps. But here's the basic thing. You start with the big picture. When you start with minutia, you end up being, I don't want to say moron. Yes, I do. You end up being a moron if you start with minutia. You start looking up every word and doing word studies and everything else, but you don't know what the grand scheme of it is. You start with the big picture. That keeps you on track, that keeps you in your lane, that keeps you tied to the grander scheme of what God is saying. So then you get into the details. You go from large to detailed. 
And we'll talk a little bit, just for a few minutes, of what that looks like, getting into the details. And then you use your findings to exegete the main point. What's the main point? The main point. Not five main points from this one story. There's one main point. There can be a thousand different ways of doing application, but there's one main point because you don't make up what the main point is. The author and God being also the author, right? Every word of Scripture has two authors, a human author, but ultimately God is supervising that process, right? So, so what is the message that God and the human author are communicating to an audience through this word? So you don't make up what the meaning is. You discover it. That's why it's called exegesis, pulling out the meaning. Okay, so there's one main meaning. There may be a lot of applications. There may be subpoints under that. Most sermons are built that way, on one main theme and then multiple points underneath. Pastor E loves to say, I just have one point today, one point and one point only. And then when he does his sermon, I hear, okay, that's another point. Okay, that's a sub-point, and that's a sub-point. I always hear multiple points, right? But, but he's talking about there's one main big idea that we want to get out of this, and it comes from the Scripture. We don't put it in there. We get it out of there. Um, and then, uh, so get that one point and compare it with the message of the rest of Scripture. So you're going from big to detail. Here's the message. Now let me look at the rest of Scripture and look at, redemption history and make sure that I'm in I'm still in line with that that I haven't just made up some brand new doctrine that no one in 2,000 years has ever heard of before I've done that sometimes in Bible study I came up with stuff I said glory look at this no one ever came up with this before I have discovered something brand new and sometimes you do get insight that you've never seen before and that's good but you want to check it so we'll look at how to do that in just a second. So that, that's the process. Go from big, get into details. We'll talk about how to do that, and then go back to the wider uh, look at Scripture. So how do we do that? Six steps here. Read the larger context of the passage, the chapter or section of chapters or the book. When you're doing detailed Bible study, you need to do that. Make notes on the context, the background, the themes, the book, the author. Now, what do you need to do that? You just need a Bible, and if you have a study Bible, that's really all you need to do, that, that first step there. So a study Bible, if, it, if it's good, like the ESV study Bible, NIV study Bible is also a good one. There's other ones out there that are good. Look for an exegetical study Bible, not just a study Bible that is dealing with one kind of issue, uh, but look for a study Bible that's actually studying the text. Um, so secondly, read the passage carefully and slowly several times, ideally in several translations. I'll give you, if I had two translations, I would use the ESV, and I would use, this is heresy to some people, but I would use the NLT, the New Living Translation, if I, had, if I just had two. The NIV is a good translation, NASB is a good translation, King James is good if you can read 400-year-old English. I'm not that good at it. I had a pastor that used to pray, Lord, make us meat for the master's use, and it used to scare me every time because <laughs> I thought I was going to turn into a piece of hamburger after he prayed, but that, that word meant something else in 1611. So, um, but but get some, a, a couple different translations and compare them, and, and, and that'll give you some insight. Uh, take notes as you do that. Ask questions of the text. Why is he saying this? Why is this here? What does this mean? Um, uh, it says he's a Pharisee. What, what exactly is a Pharisee? It says uh, it talks about a certain feast or a day. What is that? What does that mean? And then you can look those things up. You will need, it would be helpful to have a Bible dictionary. So I've given you two books so far, right? Uh, a study Bible and a Bible dictionary. Two helpful books. Also wouldn't be a bad idea to have a concordance, but you can look all those things up online as well. Um, three, investigate historical cultural matters, any idioms or figures of speech that you see in the passage. Also look at parallel passages. 
If, if, there's, if you're in the Gospels or if you're in the Old Testament, Kings, Chronicles, or, or prophets and uh, history in the Old Testament, look if there are uh, parallel passages, and you'll see those right in. If you have a study Bible, it will always be right there. It'll tell you where those other passages are. If you're studying the Bible, look at those other passages. Look at that as part of your study. If, if you're so inclined and can do this, you can do word studies as well. And even people that don't know Hebrew and Greek can easily do some word studies. One day I'm going to teach on that as well because there's so many things out there now online that allow you to do that fairly easily. But So you're just going from the bigger, right? Big to small. Now you're looking at precise things. So from all of that, you interpret the primary message of the passage, the author's intended meaning to the original audience. And from that, you look at supporting points. And you note where and how that fits in to redemptive history. How is Christ seen here? From that, you go to application. You see, application comes at the end, not right near the top. Because you really need to determine accurately the meaning before you can know what application should look like. You need to do that work first. So look at application of the passage uh, for, your for you and your audience. If, if you're preaching or teaching this or whatever, so you've got to look at it for yourself first. And then to anyone who you may be sharing it with. So that means you ask this question, what should I do, say, believe, or think as a result of this passage? What should I do, say, believe, or think as a result of this passage? By the way, this will be, where does this get posted? On our Facebook page? So this will be on the Epiphany Fellowship Facebook page, this presentation as well. So it'll be on there. Um, so here's the other piece. Here's what gets missed a lot. Also work through the how of application. I've preached a lot of sermons where I told people a lot of things they should do. And if you've been under a lot of should sermons, you should do this and you should do that and you should do the other thing. At some point, you feel like someone is just shooting all over me and that doesn't feel very good. <laughs> that just does not feel good. You just keep shooting on me, right? If you, when you go there with application, it's not just what you should do, but how do I do that? So take your application to another level, right? The level that you need to understand is not just what I should do. Okay, I've known what I should do for a long time. I, I just have never, ever been able to do it. Let's get practical and real and say, how do I do that? Not just what should I do. So work through the how. And then the sixth point is real important. Check your work with others. Now, that can be other books and sources you have, and that's great, and it should be. Hopefully, you have some sources that you can go to, but also check it out with some other people that know their stuff. It's interesting, even uh, you know, as pastors here are are doing their messages, and we're always talking to each other about maybe something that we found in the text and just kind of checking it out, and uh, what do you think about this? And I, I, I really think I've found this here. Uh, so we're always bouncing stuff off of one another, and then we're also going back to reliable, trusted, good sources to make sure that we're not going off track. Um, early in my Christian walk, I was in a church where the gospel was being preached. It was like, it was, I call it Epiphany Fellowship 1982. That was this church, right? In a lot of ways. So it kind of looked like Epiphany, different folks, and a lot of young people, and all this stuff. It, it looked very Epiphany-ish. And the pastor was preaching the gospel, and then he started changing his message. And it, it, it eventually became a full-blown cult and still is to this day people die there because the the pastor or whatever he's called now because now they're not officially a church they lost their 501c3 status they lost a whole bunch of stuff but he still has followers his daughter died a few years ago because she didn't get any treatment for her advanced cancer because he had not said you can 
and other people there have died. He went off from the scripture in all kind of crazy stuff, bizarre stuff. Um, and, and, and here's the thing. We, we want to know that we're in the book the right way. That really drove me when I left there to say, you know what? I never want to do that. I want to be able to study this book and know what it says and not lead myself, my family, or anyone else astray from this book. Because you can do that in powerful ways from the Bible, right? People use the Bible to teach all kind of stuff and to prove all kind of stuff. And much of it is foolishness. Um, so getting, checking with others, looking at reliable sources, if, especially if it's something novel or new or different, make sure that, yeah, that, that really is there. You know, just don't start proclaiming a brand new doctrine because you found it and no one else ever has. Be careful of that. So that's basically uh, it for today. Um, that will be online. You'll be able to, to get that. Let me pray. And we'll close out. Father God, we're thankful and grateful for you tonight. Uh, Lord, I, I, I pray that these sessions will be helpful for folks as we want to study your word, get into it in a deeper way, and know you better. So I pray, Father God, that your people will uh, benefit from this time, that Christ will be glorified because of our coming together and that you will just continue to be with your people. Uh, Lord, bless us as we leave this place, but not your presence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.